Well, there's more to come a little bit later. For now, you can open your Bible to the book of Titus. We've been studying this for a few weeks now, and we're going to continue. <clears throat> and as we do that, I assume most of you have either joined the gym or are currently in the gym membership. Raise your hand if you have a gym membership right now. I'm not asking if you're using it. I just want to know if you have one. Okay? You're contributing to the economy. $4.3 trillion is spent in America, or at least being anticipated to be spent this year before the year's over on health. And you're one of the dollars contributing to $4.3 trillion, which is 18% of our economy, which is insane amount of money. That's how much people spend on health. Um, I plan to join in January, just for the record. Um, $67.5 billion is spent on organic food. All right, confess. Are you an organic kind of an eater? Raise your hand. Not like vigilant and disciplined, but, you know, you do organic. Organic eggs, organic coffee, which I don't even know what that means. Organic other things. Yeah, there's like three of you and their hands keep going down. I'm not mocking you. I just want to know. Hey, you're healthy. Okay, why? there's one person who's proud of being organic. And I know that your, your budget is very, very high in that direction. <laughs> this is crazy. So I was reading an article, this is just a couple months old, that if you want to get organic apples, you're going to pay twice as much as regular apples. White bread, organic, six bucks versus $1.75 for non-organic. A uh, dozen eggs, one eighty-eight. I think this is a little bit dated, um, versus four ninety-four for organic. And there's other things, of course. The only thing that kind of confused me is ground beef. Non-organic is cheaper than, uh, more expensive than organic. Is that right? Yeah, forget this article. All right. Uh, but they look, geez, Motley Fool. I mean, that's a finance article. So usually you want to trust them. Anyway, so people spend a lot of money, 66, $67.6 billion on organic food. And they estimate that if you're an organic individual, if you are committed to organic diet, let me say it that way, you might not be an organic individual, but you're spending at least a hundred bucks more a month than people that don't do organic. Um, $33 billion is spent this year and will be spent on weight loss products. It's a big deal. People, I think, in America, obviously so, are obsessed with health and diets and being, you know, in best shape of their life. Now, the diet element is fascinating. A couple of years ago, I decided to look into some strange diets. I think it's very, very edifying for us to learn about these diets to stay away from them primarily. So there's this thing that if you drink an olive oil, a little, I guess, cup or maybe a spoon, an hour before you eat, it will suppress your appetite. Anybody try it? No? Cat? Is that true? Like how much suppression are we talking about? Like half the fries like versus the full basket? Okay. All right. So I guess it works. Somebody else raised their hand. Does it work or is this a fraud? Fraud. Uh, it works for cat. <laughs> or you could inject a tapeworm into your system. Yep. And um, there's a YouTube video about that kind of stuff I watched. You could do the master cleanse. You could do uh, lemon juice, cayenne pepper, 
and do that mornings and evenings and that'll help you with your dietary issues. Or you can go a little bit more extreme, the breatharian diet, okay? This means you feed yourself on two things, spirituality and sunlight. That's it, spirituality and sunlight. And you can get through life better and you can, uh, well, at least you'd be more spiritual. You might be dead, but you might be more spiritual. There's the freegan diet, F-R-E-E-G-A-N, freegan diet. This is reducing waste by using only secondhand food products and discarded foods. So you can become a dumpster diver and eat people's leftovers. The doctors say, these are the experts now talking, there's nothing really unhealthy about it. It's just kind of gross. So that's an option for you. How about this guy, Fletcher, Horace Fletcher proposed that you chew your food a hundred times and then you only consume liquids after that. Meals would then consist mostly of juices that kind of trickle down your throat and stop eating solid food. You can look him up. I looked him up on Google to make sure he existed. The Last Chance Diet. That sounds awesome. The Last Chance Diet by Robert Lynn in the 70s. He said that people should only intake liquid protein called elixir prolinin a few times a day. And it's made from pre-digested animal hides and products from a slaughterhouse. The FDA does not approve this diet and people have died from it, hence the name. Or you can eat cotton balls to help with your diet issues. Remember, they're not digestible. Or you can do a pretend diet. This is my favorite. Pretend diet. Just get a fork and a knife, empty plate, and just sit there and imagine yourself eating. And it'll definitely help you lose weight. Okay? So those are some good options that I think you should consider um, if you're looking for a diet. I say this because our society, at least the dollars prove this, is obsessed with health and diets and a way to extend your life. And people spend thousands and thousands of dollars doing so. People estimate that those who spend about 150 bucks a month on, on health and fitness, they'll spend over $100,000 in their lifetime. And obviously, you're just going to live longer. Therefore, you have to keep spending that money. As you look at the next passage in our little study, Paul focuses on health, the health of a Christian. He's not talking about cotton balls. He's not talking about pretend diets. He's talking about the spiritual health of an individual. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible is not against diets, whether it's physical diet or whatever else you may want to do to be spiritually fit, to be physically fit rather. First Timothy 4, 7, for example, talks about us needing to exercise and discipline, but that kind of discipline, the physical discipline that we're talking about, is of little value, Paul says, because it only is valuable in this life, whereas spiritual discipline is valuable for this life and the next. So as Christians, we have to understand that in Paul's mind and in the mind of the New Testament, by all the authors of the New Testament, there is an element to consider and evaluate yourself if you're spiritually healthy. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the leadership of a church. If you remember, Paul says to Titus, you need to go to the churches in Crete, it's an island, and start them up, set up leadership in all of those churches so that they will become healthy churches. And part of that, what we looked at last week, 
if you look at verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul says at the end of that verse that people need to be exhorted in sound doctrine. That's your word, healthy doctrine. That's the literal translation. In fact, our word hygiene comes from that Greek word. So it has an element of, of health and soundness that is applied in the New Testament. But Paul focuses in verse 13 in our passage and says this, For this reason, reprove them, these are false teachers, severely so that they may be, again, sound in the faith or healthy in their faith, in their understanding. So there's this expectation for a Christian to have a sound or healthy understanding of what the Bible teaches and then how you shape your life around that teaching. Really, the single most significant and obvious distinction between a good biblical teacher of the Bible, the ones that are being introduced in this section, versus a false teacher of the Bible is their sound or unsound, healthy or unhealthy doctrine, what they believe and what they teach, which is why Paul makes such a big deal in verse 9 and then again in verse 13. That is, you evaluate the people who lead you spiritually, who are supposed to help you be spiritually fit, spiritually healthy. You have to evaluate whether their understanding of Scripture and their commitment to Scripture is sound or if it's healthy. And the reason that Paul starts with spiritual leaders is because they're the ones, as I said last week, who set the standard for every, everyone else in the church. And so we follow. There's a man by the name of Alfred Gibbs who wrote this in comparing the life of a preacher or a pastor or a spiritual leader with a common Christian. And he used the analogy of a clock and a watch. I think it's worth it for us to consider this quote. Alfred Gibbs says this, A preacher occupies a far more prominent place in the public eye than those who take no part in public preaching. Therefore, the need for a correspondingly circumspect walk before men. A pocket watch and a public clock both serve the same purpose, to tell time. If a watch gets out of order, only the owner is affected. But if a public clock goes wrong, many are misled. Thus, a prominent position carries with it a greater responsibility for a consistent life. This will involve merciless self-judgment, separation from all known sin, and sometimes even the denying of legitimate things in life, that the testimony of Christ and the ministry be not blamed. The analogy is fitting and very, very clear. That's why the person who stands up to teach the Bible, to lead you spiritually, has to have a clean life, a healthy life, a sound life, and a sound understanding of Scripture, which is why Paul starts with that group in the church in verse 5 all the way down to verse 16, the sections we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. That is to say, if their life is a mess, then your life will also be a mess because we're supposed to imitate the lives of those who lead us. Hebrews 13, 17 makes it very clear. That we're supposed to imitate the godly men, the godly women in our lives, the small group leaders, the deacons, the elders, the pastors, those who are given the gift by God to explain the Bible to us. That's why Paul begins with focusing on leadership. 
And so in verses 5 through 9, last week and the week before, we talked about that these individuals are supposed to be exemplary. They're supposed to be above reproach in three areas. We talked about their family life. Remember that? They're supposed to be men who are committed to one woman. That's the opening words. We talked about their character. They have to have kids who are under control as well. That's the second part of that. We talked about their character, and that's verses 7 through 9. And there's a whole list of elements. Go ahead and just show all of them right away. This is the kind of individual that we're not to be as leaders, prideful, having no self-control, addicted to wine, pugnacious, aspiring for power, and then obsessed with money. But this, this is a positive list. Hospitable, lover of good, sensible, just, holy, and disciplined. This is all from verses 5 through 9. So that's the character individual who's supposed to lead the church. And I said, these terms in the New Testament are applied to people beyond elders. So in other words, yes, here the expectation is for the church leader because they're setting the standard. And that's the kind of man that Paul tells Titus to find and establish in the position of elder or pastor. But these characteristics are expected of everybody from other parts of scripture. And then the third category is doctrine. And that's the end of verse nine. They're supposed to be sound or healthy in doctrine, being able to refute and exhort. So that's the positive and the negative. Encourage, exhort, teach, and then refute those who contradict. In other words, set things in order. So that's the individual that is allowed to be an elder or a pastor in the church, biblically. Now, verses 10 through 16 gives us the individuals who oppose that. And so Paul continues that discussion. And the way I want to look at it is to talk about this idea of being healthy as a Christian. The characteristics are going to get negative, but I still want to make sure that we are able to apply them to our lives because these traits are expected of all believers, even if the immediate target audience is the spiritual leader. So here, what I think we can do is look at five indicators that demonstrate if you're a healthy or an unhealthy Christian. If you have a healthy understanding of scripture, if you have a healthy understanding of doctrine, if you have the right belief, and then if you frame your life appropriately around those beliefs. And this is how you know if your spiritual life is in order. Number one is your submission to leadership. I'm going to read the uh, verses 10 through 16, and then we'll jump into the first point. Verses 10 through 16. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any Good deed. So Paul continues the focus on leadership, as I just said. 
So don't lose that immediate audience. But by application, the question is, are you characterized by any of these qualities? And so the first quality says that these men have no place, the rebellious men, in leading the church are, first of all, they're not submissive to leadership. But a positive Christian, the right kind of Christian, a healthy Christian, is submissive to leadership. And so he says in verse 10, they are rebellious. Now, you know that the New Testament is filled with commands about submission. There's really three primary spheres of submission. You submit to the government. That's Romans 13. And you do so unless the government tells you to disobey God. That's Acts chapter 419 and Acts chapter 529. Those are the two passages that are extremely clear that tell us that we obey God, uh, the government established by God unless it contradicts the word of God. So in verse 29 of Acts 5, for example, Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. In chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Peter and John say this to the leadership in Jerusalem, you tell us if it's right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God. So again, the principle is we obey God rather than man if God and man contradict each other. But Romans 13 sets up a standard that we obey the government because the government is from God. That's the first sphere. The second sphere is the church. The church has leadership that we're talking about, and so they're to be obeyed. For example, Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So we're not just talking about submission because I'm told to submit, rather joyful submission. Because it is beneficial to you. But the Bible sets up criteria for the kind of men you are to submit to, hence our passage. So just because somebody stands up and says, I'm a leader in the church, I'm a pastor, I'm an elder. No, you check their character, you check their qualification based on Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And those are the men that God tells us to obey. And if you don't see those qualities in the individuals who are leading your church, whatever church you're a part of, then I would say leave that church. Somebody asked me this week, when do you leave a church? Other than for the obvious reason, your job moves you, you have to leave the church. It's when you cannot submit to the leadership of the church anymore. Because if it's not, not profitable for you not to submit, therefore submit. And if you can't submit, you should get out of that church. And secondly, I would say when the church is beginning to teach false doctrine, it's heresy. They're no longer preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You should leave that church. Now, I'm not saying you can never leave the church. Otherwise, I'm just saying leaving a church should not be easy because you have a spiritual gift that you're supposed to use to edify the saints. God placed you in his providence in the church. You made a commitment. You made a decision. You became a church member. And now you're supposed to be part of the life of the church. And if you are committed to that church, Hebrews 13, 17 says there are leaders in the church. Christians are supposed to obey those leaders. Now, does that mean that the elders obey nobody else? No, that's not the case at all. We also have to be respectful and submissive with one another. So there's this idea of the plurality of elders. That's First Peter chapter 5. And so we also have a hierarchy to some degree. Chris Hamilton in the back is the chairman of the elders. 
And so we, the rest of the elders, certainly look up to him and respect him because that's his function in this church as an elder. He's not necessarily in God's eyes above the rest of the elders, but he has a responsibility as the chairman of the elders to lead us. And so, of course, we respect him and follow his lead. And of course, Pastor John is the senior pastor. And so there's another layer of leadership. And so there's obedience expected and submission with respect and love and affection and prayer and all that. Okay. Now, the third sphere is parents. And I'm not putting these in any order. I'm just saying that's the third sphere. And that's Ephesians 6.1. Children obey your parents in the Lord. I think that qualifier also indicates, hey, if your parents are telling you what to do and that's according to the will of God, you obey. If they tell you to do something that is against the word of God, you disobey. That takes us back to the same principle of Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. So there's a consistency in scripture to say you obey your authority and your leadership whenever that authority is in agreement with the word of God. And then the fourth one, which if you're married, as a wife, you submit to your husband. That's Ephesians chapter 5. And that's not for everybody. So I put that in as the last or the fourth category if God gives you that. So the New Testament is pretty clear that we are supposed to be submissive. And then enter verse 10. There are many rebellious men, disobedient individuals. Now, specifically within the book of Titus, he's not just talking about these leaders who are rebellious. In chapter 1, verse 6, he already said this. Children are not supposed to be rebellious. In chapter 2, verse 5, he'll say, women who are married, you need to submit to your husband. In chapter 2, verse 9, he'll say, employees or slaves, is the language there, you need to submit to your employers or your masters. And then in chapter 2, towards the end, and then beginning in chapter 3, there's an expectation of submission to pastors and the government. So even in the book of Titus, you've got children, You've got the church leadership, you've got the government, and you've got the wives mentioned as submission. So the four categories I mentioned appear in this book alone. There's a consistency of what the Bible expects for us to be submissive. And so when Paul says there are men who are rebellious, he says, beware, because they're doing something that is completely inconsistent with the normal tenor of the New Testament. In verse 10, he calls them rebellious. In verse 16, he calls them, in the middle of the verse, disobedient. So he opens and closes this little paragraph, focusing on the disobedience of the false leaders. And if you apply that to yourself, you say, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to obey the, gov- uh, the, the, the leaders God establishes over me. Am I rebellious? Am I disobedient? In whatever relationship that I have, whether it's the government or the parent or the, the spouse and so on. There's an expectation that we are obedient, not rebellious. And so Paul calls them rebellious individuals. They should not be followed. And the language that Paul uses in verse 10 is graphic. It's somebody who's completely out of control. It's like a wild pig out of control. A wild dog just keeps biting whatever it sees or a wild horse that just cannot be tamed. It's a very violent term indicating that there are people that cannot be controlled in the context of the church. And they expose themselves through that disobedience as being false teachers. And so in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, this is how you deal with these individuals. Reject a factious man 
after a first and second warning, knowing that this man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So now he's got a category of how do you deal with this individual? You warn them twice and then you get rid of them. That's part of the church discipline process, but essentially there's an abbreviated version, you could say, because they could become factious and create even more problems within the church. So going back to the overall principle, how do you know if you are living a life and if you are a leader in the church? How do you know if you're living a life as a leader that is reflective of your understanding of sound doctrine and therefore your life is sound and healthy? Well, first of all, you submit to leadership. No matter what position you hold, you submit to leadership. Your life is characterized by submission. Secondly, you're characterized by salubrity in speech. That's verses 10 and 11. This is what he says. They are empty talkers. They're deceivers. And there are especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Empty talkers, whatever they say is completely vain. It's futile. It's meaningless. There is no substance, spiritual substance, no spiritual value to what they teach you. A lot of Christian television fits into this category. It's just stuff that's said that doesn't help you in your spiritual walk. In your spiritual health, it doesn't advance you toward holiness that we pray, uh, we sang about just a few minutes ago. It's just illustrations. It's just hypothetical statements. It's just whatever. And he says they do this for sordid gain. In other words, they're motivated by money. And we talked about that last time that true Christian leaders are not to be motivated by money. I think in the context of our Bible study, What that means is if you evaluate your life, are your conversations, let's even take Friday night, are they characterized by substance? Or is it just fluff, meaningless, vain, futile conversations? Because Paul says, those men who are rebellious, they're empty talkers. They're deceivers. And there's no substance to their conversation. It's super encouraging to me as I'm walking around, as I'm leaving and I see little pockets of people on Friday night and I overhear what they talk about and they're talking about the things of God, Christian application of Christian uh, truth. I'm not saying every single conversation in this room or in this campus has to be characterized by that. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying, there has to be an element of a natural proclivity and the desire when you talk to other Christians, you want to talk about the things of God. And if that's not your desire, then you have to evaluate whether you're actually holding on to sound doctrine, to sound faith that has shaped your life. Or perhaps verse 16 is true of you. You profess to know God, but by your deeds, you deny him. There might, that might be true. And your speech reveals your heart. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul talks about our speech being seasoned with salt. It has a preservation to it. It doesn't destroy. It preserves. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, it says, Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. 
So there's a value that the right word brings to a situation. Proverbs 16, 24 says this, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. So as you enter a conversation, are you bringing pleasant words that heal or that divide and destroy? In Ephesians 5, we're supposed to have words that are edifying, that preserve us. And the consequence of empty talkers and deceivers in verse 11 is that they upset entire families. There are two other places where this term is used in the New Testament, upsetting. In, in um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, Hymenaeus and Phileas, they've gone astray from the truth. They're saying that the resurrection has already taken place. They upset the faith of some. So here it's clear, these two individuals, Hymenaeus and Philetus, Philetus, they are denying the resurrection, the future resurrection. Okay, and that causes problems for people's faith. But the other place that it's used is in John chapter 2, verse 15. And it's used literally. Jesus entering the temple grounds and flipping over tables. Remember that story? Because there was corruption that was taking place ahead of a Jewish festival and the people were being taken advantage of. And Jesus was so distraught and disturbed that he began to flip the tables of all of these businessmen. So the imagery that should be provoked in your mind by reading verse 11, these individuals who enter the church, they're empty talkers, they're disobedient, they're deceivers. They are basically flipping your life upside down. They're destroying families. They're destroying the faith of other people, First Timothy or 2 Timothy 2.18. You guys, this isn't just, oh, that guy's a little bit off in his understanding of scripture. No, this is actually destructive to someone's faith. That's why the Bible is so direct about false teaching. And it tries to protect the eternal soul of a person by saying there are people who will destroy your soul. And you have to know them, identify them, hence all the qualifications and all the character descriptions. One of which is their speech is characterized by emptiness and deception. And they should not be taught. They need to be, verse 11, silenced. But there's a second, a third rather, characteristic, and that is sincerity in ministry. So this is indicative of somebody who has a healthy understanding of scripture and therefore his or her life is sound. They are sincere in ministry. So back to verse 11. They need to be silenced. They're upsetting whole families. They're teaching things that should not be taught for sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So Paul now goes back to this idea of sordid gain. He mentioned it back in verse 7, that a true elder and a pastor is not fond of sordid gain. In other words, he's not addicted. He's not motivated by sordid gain. He's not doing ministry for money. That's a simple application of that verse. And those who are motivated by money, well, that's the description in verse 11 and verse 
12. And in order to make uh, his point clear, he quotes somebody from the 6th century BC, somebody almost 700 years before him. And he says, this is a man named Epimenes. He was from Crete, and that's what he said. Verse 12, Cretans are liars, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Literally, the translation would be liars, always, men of Crete, nasty brutes that live to eat. Okay, there's a little bit of rhyme going on there. So Paul even takes a secular poem to say this is what generally has characterized the people on this island. And we talked about the origin of Crete that goes back into the deepest and earliest civilizations. And it says this is kind of the people that live on this island. In other words, taking their own testimony of their own fellow citizens and using it against these individuals who have now infiltrated the church and are destroying the lives of people. Their motivation, verse 11, is sordid gain. They're lazy, they're liars, they're evil beasts. There is no sincerity in ministry. It's hypocrisy. The flip side of that would be 2 Corinthians 12, 15, where Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your soul. That's motivation just from pure love for people. Galatians 4.19, my children, Paul says, whom, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And that's the focus on holiness. Philippians 1.18, as long as Christ is proclaimed in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in verse 9, as Paul anticipates death, he says this, we have as our ambition, whether at home, or absent, alive or dead, to be pleasing to him. That's the motivation that should characterize those who truly serve the Lord with pure hearts. So it's not about recognition. It's not about money. It's about genuine love for people. So as people walk away from your conversations, do they sense that about you? That you spend time with them because you genuinely care for them. You genuinely love them. You have the heart of Jesus from Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew 9, verse 36, Jesus is in the middle of a large crowd and he says, it says this. He sees the people. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus' response to people is they look like they're distressed and dispirited, and so he feels compassion for them. And the imagery there is of a lamb that was taken completely shaven. All the wool was gone, is gone and repurposed for a coat or something like that, and the sheep is just thrown into the gutter, completely ignored. That's the imagery of Matthew 9.36. And so as you interact with people, let's say you're a small group leader, you're a community group leader, you're a deacon in this church. People come to you. You lead an EWG group. You lead a men of the word group. Perhaps you've preached here. Perhaps you lead music here. Perhaps you have another discipleship relationship. You have some influence over another Christian. 
Do you see them like Jesus saw them in Matthew 9.36? Or it's just another responsibility, another kind of thing you have to do. We have to constantly align our affections to Scripture because we're in sin, we're tired, we get lazy, we have other things to do. And the Bible keeps reminding us, this is what the heart of a true shepherd is like. Is this you? Check if this is you. Because you are motivated, not by money, not by recognition, but by true service for people. Well, sincerity in ministry will be based on stability of doctrine. So he comes back to this again in verse 13. Stability of doctrine also characterizes a healthy believer who has a commitment to healthy doctrine. Verse 13, right in the middle. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So now Paul gets specific and he says, there are people who keep bringing up Jewish myths and commandments, legalism into the gospel. They've turned away from the truth and now they're bringing these legalistic standards as if they have salvific value. And Paul says in verse 14, do not pay attention to those elements. It's an image of being sturdy. So don't be swayed. Don't get sucked into it. Make sure your mind is fully fixed, not on those things. So not paying attention to Jewish myths is make sure your mind isn't swayed and then becomes trapped by those elements as if they can give you salvific value. We're talking about mysticism and legalism that repeats over and over in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2, for example, Paul talks about in the church of Colossae, there were people who are viewing angels as not exactly like God, but they were worshiping them. And Paul says, that's wrong. Other people were saying, you still need to follow certain rituals and regulations, like only celebrate these holidays and that holiday, and that will help you in your spiritual life. Or eat these foods and don't eat those foods. So in other words, legalism and mysticism was being blended together in Colossae. And Paul says, that is not what gives you salvific value towards salvation, but also towards sanctification. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to be like Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, don't pay attention to these things because these men are turning away from the truth. Well, Paul's expectation is that you don't turn away from the truth. And if you look back in verse 13, be sound in the faith. You see that article? That stuff matters. I know that I'm not going to give you a grammar lesson, but I'm going to say this one thing. Whenever you see an article before faith, we're talking about what you believe. It's not your personal faith that we're talking about. It's not what you believing in Jesus. No, it's what you believe. It's the content of your faith. So then what happens is this, the focus is on doctrine. Verse nine, the teaching right in the middle. Verse nine, sound doctrine. Verse 13, sound in the faith. And then in verse 14, the truth. 
Do you see the emphasis repeatedly in just a few verses on the right content that you believe? I'm not trying to justify my long sermons or MacArthur's long sermons or anybody else's on this campus. And Josiah's going to preach next week, so don't let him use this as a reason to preach too long to you guys. What I'm saying, though, is this. There's a reason why true Christians from the very beginning have had the same conviction. We believe the true gospel, the faith once once for all committed to the saints. In other words, we have the same body of content of biblical truth that we believe. That's the Bible. And we teach it and we study it and we explain it. And it takes time and effort. But for Paul to repeat it over and over and over, at the very beginning of the list of expectations of what a good church looks like and what good leadership in the church looks like, you have to pay attention to that. That's why almost always if there's a spiritual kind of meeting on this campus or in somebody's house connected to this house, uh, to this church, there will be an element of studying the Bible because ultimately the Bible will shape your healthy or unhealthy Christian life. And it's not about just being bibliolaters and worshiping this book. It's actually understanding that it changes you. And therefore, we have to be stable in doctrine. In First Peter, when Peter talks about the importance of the word of God, at the end of chapter 1, he says, you were born again through this word. So now we understand that the Bible or the word of God specifically is what saved us. It gave us life. Verse 23 of chapter 1. Because of that, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk or crave the pure milk of the word so you may by it grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So now he says this word, the truth of God's word saved you, therefore crave it desire it, long for it. And you know what it's like to crave something like a peach shake from Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Hamilton's on it. No, not peach. Oreo. Yes. All right. Do they have Oreo? Oh, look at that. We found one. You know what it's like? What are you craving right now? in and out Good taco. Chocolate from Germany. Huh? Tacos. Thai food. Yeah, see, <laughs> whatever you're, you're beginning to think about right now, you know what it's like to crave something because you've had it, you've enjoyed it, you have a good memory with it, you don't crave things you don't like. And Peter says, hey, you were born again through the word of God. So if you have, you will crave it. And you want it just like we crave physical items. That's the biblical expectation of a Christian. You love the Bible. And if you don't, that's also indicative of something. One of two things I'd probably say. One, you're not a Christian. That could be that simple. You're not a Christian because you don't care for this book. Or two, you haven't experienced what this book can offer that would make you crave it. 
If you haven't experienced a peach shake from Chick-fil-A, you're not going to crave it. I have. I love it. I want it. Don't bring me one today, please. (laughs) But if you haven't experienced the beauty of the word of God, you're not going to crave it. And of course, that could be just laziness. It could be being in a bad church and nobody preaches the Bible in that church. It could be you just never been introduced to this book. So those are a couple options for you to consider. I'm not saying if you don't love the Bible, you're not a Christian immediately. No, I'm just saying there could be a few reasons. But ultimately, a believer who has been born again through the living word of God will want to spend time with that book. That's what the Bible says. That's moving us towards stability in doctrine. We're not easily swayed away. We're firm and resolved like a boat that is docked and tied to a dock and it's not going anywhere. Versus a boat that's out there floundering in the ocean by the waves. Well, finally, what Paul will say is that you are also characterized by soundness in belief. By soundness in belief. That's verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. What Paul means in verse 15 is this. To the spiritually pure, to the true Christian, who has been made pure by God, by the Holy Spirit, to that individual, all things are ritualistically pure. In other words, there's no such thing as something that's kosher or unkosher. There are no dietary restrictions in the Christian life toward sanctification, toward godliness, toward salvation. Because if you remember back in verse 14, they're paying attention or somebody's teaching Jewish myths and commandments of man who turn away from the truth. So the contrast with 14 and 15 is that you've got legalistic teaching that is supposed to make you more like Jesus or bring you to Jesus for the point of salvation, versus 15. To the pure, those who have been made pure, all things are pure. First Timothy chapter 4 helps us understand this. In verse 1, it says this, First Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says, in the last times, some will fall away from the faith. Again, article We're talking about good teaching, biblical teaching. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. This is what they do. Men who forbid marriage advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy is that there are people who are demonically empowered. That's verse 1. And they're hypocrites, verse 2. And they're liars, verse 2. And their conscience is seared. They have no sensitivity to their own sin, in other words. And the way you know these individuals is verse 3. They are forbidding marriage. They are advocating legalistic diets. They've deviated from the truth. In other words, those things don't save you, Paul says. Everything is to be received with thankfulness. There's a shift that took place from the old to the new covenant. 
In the old covenant, there was an expectation of obedience and following certain rituals. Eat this, don't eat that. Colossians 2 talks about this as a shadow, a foreshadow, but the substance is Christ. All of those things pointed toward Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the law. So in the Old Testament, a faithful follower of God followed certain Old Testament rules, laws, rituals, festivals, Sabbath, certain diets. And by following those rules, they demonstrated belief in God, that they belonged to the covenant people of God, Israel, that they were anticipating a Messiah who would one day come and fulfill all of the Old Testament law. And so when Jesus shows up, Romans 10, 4 says, he is the, the, Jesus is the end of the law to those who believe. He fulfilled it all. Matthew 5 says the same. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That's why we don't have to go back to the Old Testament and try to figure out, can I eat shrimp or not? You can. Seafood is great. Can I eat things that have a divided hoof or not? There's all these things. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk kind of verses. And what we look from the New Testament is to say, no, all of those dietary restrictions were a foreshadow. They anticipated the one who would fulfill them all and thereby fulfill the law. And then that law gets applied to us, those who believe in Jesus. And we don't have to fulfill those laws. We have to believe in Jesus. The logical argument in Colossians 2 is this. If you have the substance, why would you keep spending time with the shadow? So just go outside when there's a shadow. Why would you start talking to somebody's shadow when you have the person right there to talk to? That's the idea. You have the substance. It's Christ, Colossians 2. Why are you getting obsessed with the shadow of the Old Testament rituals and regulations? So Paul says there are people who are still obsessed with that Jewish myths, mysticism, legalism. They forbid marriage and they feel like, okay, this is going to make me holier. This is going to make, make me more appropriate in the eyes of God. It's going to satisfy God's expectation of keeping the law. And Paul says, no, it won't. And so to those who have been made pure by Christ, purified by the word, Titus 3, we'll talk about that. To those individuals, all things are pure. In other words, you can eat shrimp. And you can have a ham sandwich, just not in Jerusalem. You can do that because everything is received from Christ as a gift. That's the application of verse 15, to the pure all things are pure. It doesn't mean that you can go pursue sin because I'm pure, I'm a Christian. That's not what that means. The context is verse 14. Legalism as a way to achieve the righteousness of God, that doesn't work, verse 14. But to those who are defiled... Nothing is pure. In other words, they get obsessed with all of these regulations and rituals. And even if they keep them, they will not ultimately earn salvation through them. Their mind is defiled. Their conscience is defiled. So it's interesting that the cults and the false religions are those that focus on the external ritualistic compliance to the law as a way to get to God. Whereas Christianity says it's about a relationship. It's not about a ritual or some kind of rule to follow. It's about recognizing that Jesus died and he rose again. And if you believe that and you confess that, and then you understand that you're a sinner standing in front of that God who died and rose again, 
in his human nature. And he now calls you to repent and worship him and live for him for the rest of your existence for eternity. And if you confess your sins to him, he will forgive you your sins. And now you will worship him. And he welcomes you into his family and continues to purify you and change you so that you resemble him and you become pure and your conscience becomes pure. And when in verse 16, you profess to know God, you truly know God and your deeds will prove that. The others are defiled, polluted. The idea there is their life is colored by some dye. It's like when you dye something, whether it's a cloth or your hair, it changes. It's different. It's not original. That's the idea. It's not authentic. They are not authentic in their profession of faith. It taints them. It changes them. Well, as Paul finishes up, he says, they talk all day long about how they have a relationship with God. But if you look at their life, it proves otherwise. So we can talk all day long that we are followers of Jesus. But does your life prove it? That's the simple application of verse 16. Do your deeds prove that you know God? And that's why Paul goes hard into deeds everywhere. We talked about this before. Verse 14 of chapter 2, you're zealous for good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1, you're ready for good deeds. In chapter 3, verse 8, you are engaging in good deeds. And in verse 14, you are a leader of good deeds. That's why there's a focus. Not because it's going to gain you salvation, but because your good deeds and your commitment to living a life that is characterized by good deeds is proof that you know God. And your life is not an evidence of hypocrisy. You know, Matthew 7 is one of those passages that is supposed to cause us to reflect on our lives. It's the ending of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as he finishes it, this is what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The point of this little section is to evaluate your faith. If you're, as the previous verses say, on the broad or the narrow road. If you're walking through the right gate or the wrong gate. If your fruits prove that you are connected to the right soil and to the right individual who's producing the right fruit in your life. Or if you're simply confessing and you're saying the right things and you're involved in the right things. But ultimately, verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus said this to the Pharisees, to the people that knew the Bible, that served God, that led people 
to serve God. So as we wrap it up, my encouragement to us is make sure that if you profess to know God, your life proves it. And that you're on the right path. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm not talking about never ever sinning. That's not going to happen on this side of eternity. But I am talking about making sure that you're fighting your sin. And you're not a hypocrite. And you're not pretending. And you're not coming here professing to know God, but your life speaks otherwise. That's the point of the ending of Titus chapter 1. Yes, the main focus is the leader in the church. And those kind of leaders have no place leading the church. But because those same qualifications are expected of all Christians elsewhere, it is appropriate to apply it to ourselves. Is that your life? And so as Paul wraps it up in Titus chapter 1, he uses an interesting term. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless. That's the word, worthless. Not tested and found worthless. In 2 Corinthians 13, this is what Paul says. Verse 5, test yourselves, writing to Christians. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine, the same word, yourself. In other words, find out if you're worthless. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? So the idea of being worthless in Titus 1.16 is about testing yourself. I trust, back in 2 Corinthians 13, you will realize that we ourselves aren't failing the test. So the expectation in Corinthians is this. If you are professing to know Christ, examine yourself to see if you will pass the test. And that's the connection in Paul's mind between a worthless life and a life that's tested and proven to be genuine. Look at your life. And I hope it proves that you truly know God. Lord God, we pray to that end that every single person here truly has a relationship with you. That it's not about simply being in association with Jesus, but being attached to Jesus. And as the vine and the branches imagery teaches us from John chapter 15, that we are producing fruit that glorify the Father because we are attached to Jesus Christ, whose life flows through us. And he feeds us and he prunes us to be more fruitful. The analogy between John and Jesus and Paul is the same. A Christian life genuinely rooted in Christ is a productive life. A life that demonstrates a true knowledge of Jesus Christ and God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask that every single person here in our Bible study and in our church would examine themselves and to be confirmed in their mind and in their heart that they know you and their life speaks volumes of their knowledge of you. Amen.